You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 15. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without praying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rosemary. Let's pray uh, before we spend some time reflecting on this passage. Would you pray with me? Lord, speak now, for we, your church, are here to listen. By your Spirit, speak to us in such a way that who Christ is, what he's done for us, and what he's called us to be are so clear and so evident to us that we can't leave without being changed by them. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Maybe I'm hypersensitive or just hyper-aware, but it seems to me there's a new growing genre of entertainment. We might call it the religious trauma genre. Religious trauma genre. I can't be the only one who's witnessing this. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast ranked pretty high uh, amongst podcasts. Shiny Happy People, following the Duggar family, the 19 Kids and Counting family. Uh, There's a 
a story called God Forbid or a, a show called God Forbid about Jerry Falwell Jr. and his rise and uh, his horrible fall. Uh, the Secrets of Hillsong recently came out, sort of exposing a dark side of the Australian megachurch, which produces music that so many churches sing. Uh, it seems to me, and this is just in the last year, you know, this is just the subculture that I kind of know something about. Uh, there's been a bombardment of, of things marketed as entertainment, but that seem to be dealing with what is sold as religious trauma. Now, I haven't watched or listened to all of these, so I'm not actually promoting them or, or speaking against them. On the whole, I feel like it is the call of the Christian, you know, from Ephesians 5.11 to expose works of darkness. And so, unfortunately, I feel these projects are, are in some senses, things the Lord will use for good. I, I have my concerns about the religious trauma sort of genre, you know, becoming kind of a form of entertainment, these are real lives uh, on the other side that have been hurt. And so the idea of sitting in Netflix and just like craving to watch one more episode before you go to bed of something about religious trauma, that, that sort of concerns me. But nonetheless, um, I do think that we now live in a world where our average neighbor has seen this as part of, of the type of entertainment they like to take in. And they now are more aware of the false motives that motivate so much Christian ministry around the world. These documentaries have kind of been pushed out in such a way that our neighbors who don't go to church and our neighbors who find it sort of puzzling and confusing that we still practice Christianity, they're more familiar with churches like this and the false motives that drive forward their ministry, the sort of ways in which narcissists and hypocrites, you know, sort of motivated by power and control, sort of misuse the cause of Christ for their own gain. Our neighbors are now more familiar with that story than they are with any story of people with sort of pure motives, our, our rightly ordered uh, motives for ministry. And so what I want to look at this morning, and I'll have to be somewhat brief, we're, we're, we're running a touch late and I can see just, you know, it's hot, this is harder to pay attention. But what I want to look at this morning is in a world of religious trauma, you know, in a world where religious trauma has become an entertainment genre, and in a world where our neighbors are increasingly familiar with misguided and even sinful motivation for ministry, what I want to look at is what motivated Jesus' ministry and what ought to motivate all ministry that flows out of Jesus. Anyone who wants to minister in Jesus' name, what ought to motivate them? So what, what motivated Jesus' ministry and what ought to motivate those who want to minister in Jesus' name? That's what I want to look at this morning. So first, what, what motivated Jesus' ministry? Um, this passage begins, it would be great, to go in detail with verse 35 to spend a little bit longer time, but this is actually a, a, a verse that is almost identically repeated in chapter 4, verse 23. And Matthew, like a good sort of narrator, is signaling that he's starting his second round of discourse teaching, his second round of teaching. So in chapter 4, verse 23, we get almost word for word, verse 35 again. Then we get the Sermon on the Mount, this sort of first block of teaching of Jesus. Now here in verse 35, we get this same sort of summary of Jesus' ministry again, and it's setting us up for this second block of teaching for Jesus. Jesus, we're told, serves as an itinerant preacher, walking around, talking about the inbreaking of God's kingdom, about how near God's kingdom is. And he gives people a taste of what it's going to be like when, when God is the true and final king over all of his people, when there's harmony between the realm of God and the realm of earth. All sicknesses will be done away with. Disease and affliction will be no more. And then in verse 36, we read that when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what motivates 
Jesus in his ministry and in his mission, how would you describe it when you think about it? Well, it's very clear here. What motivated him in this phase of his ministry was nothing short of compassion. And in fact, the word behind compassion is just, it's just not, it, it doesn't go to quite the depths that I think Matthew's trying to tell us. This is, this is uh, something, it, it, it disturbs him deep down in his gut. He has a visceral reaction when he looks over the crowds. He, he's knocked over. Maybe, you know, those photos we get of war-torn countries with the crying child, you know, being pulled out of rubble. Uh, those pictures of starving children. Do you know how that feels in your, in your gut? You know how that knocks you over and you lose your appetite? All that's on your agenda for the day to come, it's, it seems to be unimportant. Just overwhelmed with compassion. This is, this is what Jesus, how he feels when he sees the crowds. And this is what motivates him and his particular ministry. And it's interesting. It's very, very, very interesting to think about this. Is that Jesus we're told, is motivated, not uh, compassion, not because he looks at the people and say, these people are so incredibly wicked. I've left a very clear playbook of what it means to be a good person on this earth. I've given to them my Ten Commandments. I've even given them a summary statement. This is not what motivates his ministry, his utter frustration with his people. What, frust- what overwhelms him and what gives him this visceral emotion is that these people look helpless and hopeless. They are harassed. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus draws upon a very common Im- image in the Old Testament, really sort of leading up into the prophets, of God's people being like a herd of sheep, and the leaders of God's people were supposed to be true shepherds. And I don't know if you know this, but when the shepherd uh, dies, or if, if, if the shepherd is nowhere to be found and the sheep are out in the field, it's not like they come together and host a democratic election and decide how they ought to thrive as a community. Sheep are stupid. They have to be led, or else they will starve. They will get themselves into trouble. The stories uh, could be piled on over and over and over again. And when Jesus looks out over the people of Israel at this time, deep down in his gut, lose your appetite, kind of disturbed, and he's filled with nothing but compassion. They're harassed, they're helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Kim and I once had a neighbor that lived uh, near us, that neglected their child uh, quite a bit, actually, to the point that Children's Aid Society had to be called and had to intervene. But you know what? When we were around that child, and that child was extremely disrespectful, or we heard, you know, stories that the child was stealing toys around the neighborhood, how do you think we responded when we experienced the disrespect or heard stories of the theft? you think we were angry? Well, a little bit. But we are overwhelmed with compassion. Here's a kid trying to raise themselves. Here's a kid without a parent to teach them right from wrong, to discipline them when they're disrespectful, to teach them what it means to be a good neighbor. Yeah, yeah, the, this, the state of, of where they're at is, is overwhelming, and, but it's mostly sadness you feel, mostly compassion that overwhelms you, extreme compassion. Children need parents. They're not going to naturally find the right way to go. Jesus looks over the people of Israel at this time, and he's bowled over. He's knocked over. And this is what motivates his ministry. I want to spend just a second here reflecting, and we could spend a lot more time thinking about this. But I wonder, if I went to each one of you, and I sat down with you, and I said, how do you think Jesus looks at you right now? How does he see you? What goes through his mind? How does he, how does he respond? And you were in a place where you didn't try to answer sort of with some Bible verse that kind of got the pastor off your hook, but you really gave your, your knee-jerked instinct about how Jesus feels about you as he looks down from heaven upon you. 
My guess is there would be all kinds of thoughts, but things like disgust, maybe disappointment, failed to be the people you could have been and ought to have been, so much privilege, so much waste. This passage, if it teaches us anything, it tells us this, that there's a good chance Jesus is looking down from heaven. And he looks upon the state of our world, and he looks upon the state of our city, and he looks upon the state of our church, and he looks upon you, and he looks upon me. And the first instinct, the one that kind of overwhelms the others, that he feels is a state of compassion, deep compassion. And that's what motivates him. He sees people that look like they are helpless and harassed. They're under burdens that they can't handle. Sinners, yes, but victims too. Stuck in systems that are destructive, destructive family systems. Patterns within cities which bring about confusion. Cultures which praise all the wrong things. We're addicted to entertainment and bombarded with more of it. Addicted to bettering ourselves. We're absolutely terrified of children not being part of the elite. So we put them in every lesson we can put them in. And every sporting event they can be in so that they don't look average as they age. What do you think Jesus thinks when he looks upon you scrolling through Netflix or me scrolling through Netflix and sees religious trauma becoming a popular genre in our world. The Jesus I'm finding in scriptures in this passage, and this is sitting pretty heavy with me this week, is first struck with compassion. Deep, deep compassion. Like children without parents' compassion, you know? Sheep without a shepherd compassion. It hurts. This is the Jesus we find here. Let me just speak bluntly, at risk of offending some for the wrong reasons and hopefully offending those for the right reasons. Something is happening in our world, and those of us who are trying to take the Bible seriously and try to understand what the Bible has to say about what it means to be human in a society that seems to be progressing and pushing things in a different direction, something has happened in the midst of trying to navigate these very difficult cultural battles where an attitude of kind of contempt and disgust is kind of manifesting in the, in the group of people who might be trying to conserve these old biblical, these old biblical ethics. Sort of a constant state of, my goodness, these fools, these idiots. Watch out. That, that contempt, that disgust, I mean, I understand it. That is not the instinct that Jesus feels when he looks upon a world that is suffering, when he looks upon a world that is lost. That's not his first instinct. And if, if you don't feel an ounce of compassion as you look out over the state of affairs, then I don't know if you understand who Jesus was, and I don't know if you understand what he came to this world to do for you. His ministry was motivated by compassion. Listen, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is going to be so motivated by compassion that he will give up his life on a cross shed his own blood after living this perfect life, one with his creator, perfect with his creator. He'll give up his life in such a way to provide the means of atonement for our sins. It shouldn't surprise us that it's compassion that primarily motivates him because, you know, anger doesn't do much productive work. Disdain and scorn, it's not going to cause you to give your life for another. But I'll tell you what will. I'll tell you what will. And you know it on TV. You see a starving child, you know you go over your budget again to think about ways you could be generous. You know, I know you do. It's compassion that drives deep, sacrificial service. And it's compassion which serves as the motivator of Jesus' ministry here. I could go on and on. He's not motivated by celebrity. He's not motivated by power. It's compassion, which is the primary motivator which drives his ministry. 
So then we have to ask, what ought to motivate anyone who ministers in his name? And at this point, you might think the answer is sort of immediately obvious. Like, Kyle, you've said the word compassion about a thousand times, so I have a good guess as to what ought to motivate those who minister in Jesus' name. But it's interesting, if you look at verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. What does he say? Therefore, pray earnestly that you will grow in compassion. Is that what he says? Of course not. What does he say? We're to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send more laborers into the field. And no sooner did Jesus teach his disciples to pray this than chapter 10 starts by saying, hey, you 12 friends of mine who I asked you to pray that prayer, the Lord has answered. <laughs> our God has heard our prayer. I am sending you 12. What, prior to this, how many people are part of this sort of kingdom mission? To bring God's kingdom to this earth. Maybe John the Baptist and Jesus. We're up to about two. Jesus looks over the people. He's filled with compassion. And he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers. And then he takes the twelve. And he then sends them. He calls them, gives them authority. And sends them out to go work the fields. It's interesting. They're given a very specific calling with some very clear limitations. Only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus looks over Israel and says, for a thousand years plus... God has been laboring and working, tilling the field and, and planting the seed and sending the water and setting things up so that harvest time is now ready. Their ministry is, is unique in, in, in its perspective. They're to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopard, and cast out demons. That, that, that is what they are called to do. It's very interesting. At the end of the Matthew, at the end of Matthew's gospel, they're going to get another commission. They're going to be sent out again with other marching orders. And those marching orders are going to be to go and to baptize all nations, teaching them to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that is commanded. At the end of Matthew's gospel, they're not sent out to do these miracles. At this point in the mission, they have a very, not only limited scope, go to the house of Israel, but they also have a, a, a uniqueness to their mission. They are specifically to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, and cast out demons. And Matthew also hints that there's a certain measure of urgency that goes on at this particular, with their particular call. They're not to prepare for their trips. They're not to put, make sure they fundraise properly and have all their money in their belts. They're to just go and trust that they're going to find the resources necessary. And they're going to get mixed responses. Some people are going to reject them and they're going to just say, wash their feet, wash their hands of these people and say, listen, a judgment is coming upon you. I'm convinced the judgment Jesus is speaking about here is the judgment the Romans are going to bring in AD 70. But some will receive them and the, the disciples then, the apostles then, are to, to bring their peace upon this house. So let me ask then, what ought to motivate anyone who's ministering in the name of Jesus? Well, first you ought to be motivated by a deep awareness, a, a clear sense that God has called and sent you first. Why? Because this is ultimately God's mission we're reading about. This isn't our plan that we're concocting to save humanity. This is God's mission. And ultimately, what must come first is there must be a clear calling and sentness by God. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Uh, there's a great difference between elected officials and the sort of bureaucratic appointees. And you know what that is? The elected officials say, I am here because I won, you know, sort of the majority of the vote. You know, I, I serve at the pleasure of the voter. But what do the bureaucratic appointees say? The ones who sit and counsel and cabinets with the elected officials. What do they say? I serve at the leisure of the crown. You know, I serve at the leisure of the king. In some senses, what ought to motivate those of us who want to minister in Jesus' name is to know that he is the true king. 
And if we didn't get our particular callings by a majority vote, though sometimes these things take place, ultimately, God calls and God sends, and we ought to know and we ought to be motivated that we serve at the pleasure of the king. We serve at the pleasure of the king. And if he's had enough with us, if he's not going to use us for the next mission, then so be it. He's the one who sows the seed. He's the one who cultivates the crop. He's the one who waters. It's ultimately his work. Now first, so what am I saying? What ought to motivate those who minister in Jesus' name? There ought to be a very keen sense that they are called and that they serve at the pleasure of the king. But we also find that there needs to be some sort of affirmation of this being an answer to and a deliverance of prayer. He says to pray for more workers. He doesn't say when you see the abundance of the harvest field, you ought to go. Although many pastors will preach sermons that way and you know, many, many of, of missionaries have been called through that kind of a spirit. But what does he say first? He says first, you are to pray. To pray. Now I don't know if you know this, but the fact that we're sitting in here today, the fact that we're hearing God's word read today, that we sang the songs we said today, this is the result of prayers that came long before, long before this church was ever reality. A couple in this church, there were many that told me stories like this, but one very specifically told the story of a church that sold their building and moved into the West End, and they've been praying that God would bring a new church into this neighborhood. And when a church plant was announced, they were beyond thrilled. Listen, this is how this mission goes forward. God calls and he sins, but his people pray. His people pray, and then God sends his workers into the field to minister in his name. What motivates those who minister in Jesus' name? We're motivated by the fact that we know this is Jesus' mission. And so therefore, it doesn't depend on our skills and our strategy. It doesn't even depend on our compassion when it runs dry. It depends on Jesus and his compassion. His compassion, which is much deeper and much greater than we will ever understand. But as we pray that the Lord would send more workers to the harvest, and as we tune our ear in to hear the Lord's calling, the Lord transforms our hearts that we start to feel an, a, a drip of the compassion that he has for the lost. And he sins. Now you might think, this is all fine and great, but I'm not about to leave here and go to seminary, so what's in this for me? You know, I'm not going to go plant a church. It's interesting that Jesus, in this calling, in one sense, he gives something that feels universal, but it's very unique, the urgency and the specificity of this particular calling. And I think from that we can learn a lesson that our Lord does indeed call us each to unique and distinct sort of ways in which we participate in this grander mission. I haven't got a chance to see the Oppenheimer film yet, so I'm not going to spoil it. But I do find it absolutely crazy that the Los Alamos uh, factory where they're building this nuclear bomb, that the vast majority of people, something like 75% of the people, had no idea why they were doing what they were doing. The primary purpose of what they were doing was disconnected from sort of the average day-to-day job description of a worker in Los Alamos. And in some ways, that's a bit of what it feels like to be part of God's people. We know we're serving a greater kingdom. We know we've been, you know, asked to join in and to serve this kingdom. And we're trying to figure out, why am I sweeping the floors? You know, no one in Los Alamos that was sweeping floors knew that they were sweeping the floors so that the facility could stay spotless so a nuclear bomb could be built. No one knew that that was sweeping floors. They just swept the floors for the greater cause that they believed that they were participating in. I'm not defending nuclear bombs, by the way. What I'm trying to say is this. There's something to be said here that each person is given a unique and special way in which they participate in Jesus' mission. And he calls some of you to sweep the floors, not knowing the way in which your clean floors contribute to something much greater than you could ever imagine. 
For some of you, that's raising kids right now and changing diapers. It's being a good neighbor when you can't stand the person next to you. You know, the one that blows all their leaves into your yard. It's learning to love and serve this person. You say, how does this contribute to what God's doing? If this passage tells me anything, it's that God not only has, that Jesus not only is motivated by compassion, but that as he sends out, he gives very unique and special callings to each and every one of us. And some of us are plugging away code in a computer and we have no idea but the Lord just might be using that to advance his mission of seeing all people know this good news that he came motivated by compassion to give of his life, that all sins might be forgiven and that the world might be restored, made to the way it was intended to be, diseased, done away with. Let me conclude this way. I don't know if you know the name Father Joseph Damien. He's born in Belgium in 1840. The only way you might know of him is if you've been to Hawaii. He's very common there. While he was training for the ministry he overheard stories about leper colonies in Hawaii and a separate island in Hawaii that was set aside exclusively for those with leprosy. He heard stories about sailors who would throw the lepers off in their cage onto the shallow ground and the other lepers would have to drag their fellow leper onto the island and help them get out of their cage. He was told about the horrendous living conditions of these lepers and he was motivated by compassion. And he prayed, and he asked, Lord, is there anything I might be able to do to contribute to this kingdom of Hawaii and this leper problem? And what do you know he felt called? Father Damien heard that there were some Christian lepers, actually, that were on the island. And through interacting a bit with his superiors, he found a way in which he was tasked to go to the island, to stay away from all the lepers, and to build a chapel for the few believers that were battling leprosy on this island in Hawaii. And he was giving strict orders. He was not to hear confession. He was not to serve any of the Lord's Supper or Mass. He was, not, he was only there to build a chapel, not to interact with the people, and leave. But after building the chapel, Father Damien held his first service. And not ten, but hundreds came. And he couldn't leave. Overwhelmed by compassion, he ministered and prayed and served the Lord's Supper And spent all of his days bandaging wounds, building shelters, building schools for the children. He even built over 300 caskets that those dying of leprosy might get a proper and fitting burial. And on Sunday, one Sunday in 1885, after he had been doing this for 16 years, ignoring his instructions just to build a chapel and get off, after he told his superiors he wasn't coming back in 1885, 16 years in the ministry, he started his Sunday sermon this way. We lepers. Not long after this, no great medical intervention was given. Father Damien died of leprosy. And if you go to the U.S. Capitol building, each state is able to have two statues that represent their state. And Father Damien is one of the statues for Hawaii that you'll find there. Friends, what could possibly motivate someone with a promising future to leave it all and go work in these hopeless conditions in a leper colony in an island in the middle of the Pacific. He wasn't motivated by disgust of sin. He wasn't even motivated by his own guilt. What was he motivated by? He was motivated by the type of compassion Jesus had, and he heard our Lord calling him, giving him opportunities, and he said yes, and he went. And he became a means by which, as he gave of his life through compassion, many people came to know that God in love sent his son Jesus Christ and his son is at work 
not only forgiving sins, but he is at work one day to put all disease and death under his feet and to pass on to that, that hope to people who are living in a hopeless state. This is what it means to be God's people. What motivates Jesus' ministry? Compassion. What motivates those who minister in Jesus' name? We hear a clear calling from him. We know that it's his mission. We pray that he sends more laborers. and We find our hearts melting by compassion too. Let me pray. Lord, would you grow in our hearts greater compassion for our neighbors here in the east end of the city? Would you help us to look with eyes of compassion, not eyes of jealousy, at the nice cars and the great status that exists in many around us? Would you help us to grow with compassion to those who are wandering around, not sure about what it means to be human and how to live any sort of semblance of good life? Would you help us to grow in compassion with those who find themselves trapped in addictive sins? Father, would you grow, grow in compassion in us? But more important to that, would you, because we know your compassion is unending, very clearly send us, tell us the ways in which we can sweep the floors for your kingdom. And would you use us, we ask, Father, that more might come to know the hope that we found in Christ, might know the compassion we've, our sins have been met with, might know forgiveness and know new life. Father, would you use us Send more laborers, we beg. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.